Appreciate your prayers. I'm going to try not to use the microphone in this little room. Now we come to these passages. Excuse me. Chapters of 7, 8, 9, and 10 that specifically talk about the priesthood of Jesus as Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed. Christ anointed by the Spirit to be prophet, priest, and king. But it's important for us to understand that Jesus Christ is a priest but of a different order, of the order of Melchizedek. And Christ is not a priest according to Herod or according to Levi. All the other priests of Israel were derived from Levi. That was the tribe chosen by God to do the ceremony and the priesthood to run the sacrifices. But what we see here is a distinction between those priests and this great high priest of God, Jesus Christ. Genesis 14 gives us a historical record, a true fact, an event that occurred. And the author of Hebrews, which I believe is the Apostle Paul, but he picks up on this and explains the value of this record of Melchizedek as it relates to Jesus Christ, the high priest. Think about why this is important. Why is Jesus of a different order? Why does David say that in Psalm 110? which we read. Why is he different? Why can he not just be like Levi or Aaron? Let's consider these verses of Hebrews 7. First of all, let's consider who Melchizedek is. Paula, you like names and words. Basically, this man, Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. 
the king of Sadak. Righteousness. What does that mean? Is he like God? Like the son of God? Who's golden? Jeremiah 23. His name is the Lord our righteousness. What this basically means is that Melchizedek is a man who walks with God, who has a righteous life, an upright life, a life of trusting God, a life of serving God. You see, we don't know much about him. And that's part of the dispute in this passage. But what we know is he's been chosen by God. Now, get the picture here. This is the land of Canaan. But this is hundreds of years before Israel comes into the land, conquers the land, and becomes a kingdom under God. This is a land that's dominated by pagan kings and pagan religions full of idolatry. But we're told here, this man, Melchizedek, is a righteous man, an upright man, and that he dwells in Salem, or Shalom, or the city that becomes Jerusalem. So, what is he? He's the king of this city-state, Salem or Jerusalem. Now, at this time, there were not all these great nations and all these pagan tribes under one king. But there was the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a city several thousand feet up in the mountains and down on the plains, close to the Dead Sea, hundreds of feet below sea level, are these other city-states, Sodom, Gomorrah, and other places. They had their own kings and their own laws. And they were wicked and committed gross sins. But the contrast is Melchizedek is both a priest and king of God Most High. How does he become this king and this priest? 
Well, scripture doesn't really tell us. How did this man dwelling in Canaan come to know God Most High? How did he become a priest offering sacrifices to God hundreds of years before the Mosaic Law, before the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Scripture does not tell us how God chose this man, but Scripture tells us he was a king and a priest, a righteous man, a man of peace, a man who walked upright with God. And God chose him to be his priest at that time amidst many priests of pagan religions. Why did God choose him? We're not told. But he has godly character. Why did God choose Abraham out of the pagan land of her of the Chaldees and send him to Canaan, the promised land, and give him the promise of a son and of a great nation? Well, simply, it's God's sovereign plan to choose whom he will to serve him. And he chooses Melchizedek, this righteous man, to be his priest, to represent him in this land at this time. Now, we didn't read all of Genesis 14. You can do that. But what happened was a group of kings, these pagan kings, decided to go to war against a group of other kings. Not up in Jerusalem but down on those plains, these city-states. Basically, it's four kings against five kings. And what happens is the nephew of Abraham, Lot, and his household, and all his possessions, are taken captive in this war. Abraham comes to Lot's defense. Abraham raises an army of his servants and goes and defeats these kings, rescues Lot 
and Lot's household brings back their goods. That's the historical context. And what we're told is that Melchizedek, this king of Jerusalem, this priest of God, comes and meets Abraham after this war, blesses Abraham as being a servant of God Most High. And what does Abraham do? Of the spoils of this war, Abraham gives most of it back to Lot's family. But he gives a tenth to Melchizedek as service to God Most High. Abraham, this great, great servant of God, whom God has promised, will be the father of a great nation. He recognizes Melchizedek serves God, and he does the right thing of giving this dive to Melchizedek this king of righteousness. In verse 4, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. This pattern of tithing he talks about here this is a pattern that's repeated under the Mosaic law throughout the Old Testament the people of Israel were to give a tenth of their income of their goods to the Levites to the priests to support the Levites, the priests, the uh, tabernacle in the Old Testament, and the temple. This was God's way of providing for that service and those priests. And we're told here that the priests of the Levitical order did this and received tithes. We're told here that even Levi, who's the great grandson of Abraham, so to speak, received tithes when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. The Levites, not born, for many years after Abraham. This is the pattern. And Abraham recognizes this is God's way. I give a dive 
to the righteous king. And this shows that God gets the glory because I'm giving to the representative of God, God's priest, who represents God, who mediates for the people. Now, sorry, George. It's okay. It gives my voice a chance to rest. That's fine. So, why is it important that in Psalm 110, throughout Hebrews, that the author of Hebrews keeps pointing out the importance of Melchizedek and that Jesus is of this order and not of the Levi or Aaron. So let's think about this. First of all, we know Jesus is not born of the tribe of Levi. He's born of the tribe of Judah. But nobody from Judah in the history for 1,500 years or so of the sacrificial system of the priesthood. Nobody was made a priest unless they were of Levi. But we're told that Jesus is Messiah. He's a priest a true priest, a true mediator. But the problem is he's of Judah, not Levi. So here in Hebrews, we come to this point that Jesus was chosen to be of a different order. And there's reasons for that. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek, the righteous, upright king. Why is that important? Several reasons. In the history of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, you see many ungodly, unfaithful, wicked priests serving in the temple. Eli and his sons and others, priests who disobeyed God, did not keep God's law did not keep the sacrifices properly. We read of priests 
offering strange fire before the altar. In Israel, there's a history of prostitutes around the temple. There's just these patterns of wickedness. And God is saying, I can't give you a faithful, true high priest of that order. I have to give you a blameless, righteous high priest of a different order. God chose Melchizedek and he says, my son as Messiah, as priest, will be of this order, a godly priest, not like the wicked priest. Not that all priests of Israel were wicked. Some were good. At the time of Jesus, we're told there were some 18,000 priests in Israel. They didn't always serve in the temple every day. They had divisions in order. So we're told that when Gabriel comes to Zechariah, that it was Time for his order, his group to go serve. But God chose an upright man, an upright wife, Elizabeth, to be the father and mother of the messenger that would prepare the coming of the Lord, John the Baptist. But in order to bring righteousness, a blameless priesthood, a blameless sacrifice and Lamb of God, this priest has to be not of Levi, but like Melchizedek, who's righteous. Levi himself did wicked things. But God chose his tribe to represent his people in the temple, in the tabernacle. But then God says, I need someone greater than Levi. In the passage, from Timothy. Paul says, there's one God, one mediator between God and man. The man, really the God-man, Christ Jesus. But 
the Son of God, which we talked about last week, the Son given, the child born. He has to be a man to represent us, to represent man. But he can't be a sinner. So we're told he was tempted in all points of the law, yet without sin. So this man, Christ Jesus, is both the priest who offers the sacrifice and the spotless lamb that is slain. The only person in history who can represent a holy God and sinful people like us. Now, you know, there's a dispute among commentators based on these verses that in verse 3, this Melchizedek without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, being like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This has caused much dispute throughout the years. Is this Melchizedek a pre-incarnation appearance of the Son of God? Because no genealogy, no beginning, no end. Some commentators lean that way. But I think what this is, is not an appearance of the Son of God. I believe that Moses would have told us. So, if that were the case, because in Exodus 3, when Moses encounters the burning bush, he says, the angel of the Lord spoke. And that is terminology of an pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. The angel of the Lord indicates the second person of the Trinity appearing. The author of Hebrews doesn't say, well, this was Christ long before the Incarnation. But what I think this probably means is that Moses, in writing Genesis 14, simply was not told by the Holy Spirit anything about Melchizedek, his ancestry, his parents, his age. When he became 
a king and a priest and how long he served in those capacities. But he serves as a priest till the end of his days, till his death. It's a priesthood that is taken out of Genesis 14 and transported 1900 years later to the time of Christ. Again, it's not that Jesus is of Levi, but he's like this righteous priest, Melchizedek. So David says, Psalm 110, Thou art a priest forever, like Melchizedek. Again, just to sum it up, Christ, to be the priest, had to be different than the ungodly, sinful priest throughout the Old Covenant. Though there were good ones, they were still sinners who had to offer sacrifices on behalf of their own sins. This priest represents us because he has no sin. And this priest, because he conquers death, is risen, endures forever. And what is he doing today? The scriptures say he sits where? To right hand of the Father. Doing what? Interceding for his people. His priesthood continues not to sacrifice that was once and for all for his people. The perfect legal penal sacrifice for sin. So brothers and sisters, last week I said, look to Jesus, wonderful, a counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Father of the everlasting. This is our priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what it had to be. That's why God chose Melchizedek to be a type that points to Christ. He says here that Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, not the reverse, not the Son of God, made like Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, a righteous servant, points us to the most righteous Son of God, our priest, 
our mediator, our king, our prophet, our Christ and Messiah. I'm always dropping this thing. Thank you. All right. Just a few action points. I want you to read Hebrews 7, 8, 9 in the coming weeks as we look at more detail about Christ, his sacrifice, his priesthood, how he is the mediator of a new and better covenant. And I want you, brothers and sisters, place your trust and confidence in Christ. He intercedes for you. He died for you. His sacrifice is sufficient. No other sacrifice is needed. So you don't beat yourself and, you know, flagellate yourself to pay for your sins. You trust Christ. His sacrifice. Pay for all your sins. Past, present, and future. And there's power in the gospel to realize. I'm a big sinner. But Christ is a big savior. His work is sufficient. All I need to do as a believer, is keep looking to Christ. Do you sin? Yes. Go back to Christ. Give your guilt to Him. He's our defense attorney before God's court. And then the third point. If Christ is the only priest available to a sinful world, again, we must preach Christ to this world. The world tries all kinds of pagan and sinful and wicked practices to try to deal with sin. It's power, presence, and penalty. But Christ is the only one who led a righteous life and died the proper and perfect death, the only provision for sin. And Christ came into the world to save sinners. So we must Tell people of this work of Christ, or they will perish in their sins. No man can save himself. They must go to Christ. So we must witness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus being so different than Levi.
that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Thank you for these historical facts. <laughs> Thank you for Jesus, this great priest that we needed. Thank you that Jesus was willing and able to live the life we couldn't and die for our sins. Though we are not deserving. Thank you for the work of Christ. May we look to Christ every day for grace and mercy and help in the time of need. Amen.